Hello listeners. Welcome to season 2 of the Masters Decoder podcast. I am Anish Merchant, the chief decoder. I want to thank you for the overwhelming response to season 1. Your feedback and encouragement led me to bring you season 2 of the Masters Decoder. The season will tap into how technology, artificial intelligence and other socio-economic factors have impacted my guest careers or passions. My next guest on today's episode is Mahmoud Kabur. Mahmoud is an award-winning Lebanese filmmaker and creative consultant based in Dubai and Berlin, working internationally. His multilingual productions have shown at top-tier festivals and museums and were all broadcast worldwide. Mahmoud's films received numerous best film and audience awards, including Tribeca's $100,000 audience award for Grandma a thousand times. presented personally by Robert De Niro. Without much further ado, let me get on with it. Hey Mahmoud, welcome to Masters Decoded podcast, the second season. Glad to have you. Hello Anis. Um I'm delighted to be here. Congratulations on the new release on the My Family and the Explosion uh the mini series on the Beirut blast. Uh, you know, I have seen some glimpses of it. It's beautiful. uh and it's heart touching also and it talks about a lot of things which mainstream media is not covering uh do you want to share how did that come about why did you do that sure i want to share a glimpse of the recent documentary my family and the explosion the entire world was in a state of shock when we all saw the catastrophic impact the blast had on the city but mahmud and his crew has spent time with the family to understand the real impact of the explosion here are some glimpses of the documentary though in arabic it is the sadness in the voice of nicole which speaks the world language badharat la barra ta shuf kif hayakhdu kaman shiftu lam hamlino wa shiftu nhatu a mobilat نحن عائلة مألفة من ثلاث أشخاص عايشين كنا مرتاحين ومبسوطين. Uh, my family and the explosion is a little film I put together uh, in Beirut shortly after the 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 massive blast that happened in the port of the city on August 4th of the last year. um i as a lebanese uh have not lived in lebanon for many years i actually got the news while i was with my daughters in a playground in berlin germany where i reside but um it felt as if the ripples of the explosion were coursing through me in that very moment yes. and for two days i could not do anything except be on youtube and try to decipher which of the streets that i know have been destroyed by mm. by this tragedy and within less than 4 days i was already packed and on a plane and headed to lebanon in the middle of uh a serious corona pandemic both in germany and in lebanon and i just wanted to be there um i booked a crew uh, many of them are wonderful film technicians whom i've worked mm-hmm. with in the past um uh, but many of them had not left their homes since the explosion has happened so for 5 days we were touring around beirut and filming in places and my crew were seeing the destruction for the first time i really regret not having the camera on them 
that could have been a parallel project. But we still um, covered the main sites. We spent a day in a hospital. We spent a day uh, in, uh, you know, Maram Khayel area, which was completely demolished. Um, and we were releasing as much content as possible to news media. Mm -hmm. But along the side, there was a story that I got attached to. I spoke to a woman whose husband uh, had sustained brain damage uh, from the explosion itself. The, the, the doors of their home just flung off the hinges and fell on his head. And she was nonetheless such a reflective and poignant speaker. Her name mm. is Nicole. And um, I went to my hotel that night and in the morning I woke up and I only wanted to speak to her again. So I okay. came back to her in the hospital and I was like, would you let me follow you a little bit longer? Um, and she could not say a yes or no, but in a way she wanted to grieve on camera and I could mm -hmm. feel how the camera was letting her speak some more about her fears for her family and for her daughter now that their husband is, is not showing signs yet whether he's going to recover or not and that's how the story of this film started i came back to beirut a number of times and filmed with them again and again and it's a way of telling the explosion story from the point of view of a small family rather than from the grand imagery of this massive explosion and you know the hollywood effect it had and yep. you know because it was so uncanny how how that explosion ripped through the city but I'm trying to illustrate here how it how it touched upon lives. No, I, I have some, I've seen some of the glimpses of the of that series which you did and of the movie which you did, and it's devastating for many of us because when the blast happened last year, many of us were shaken. Even though it didn't impact us directly, but it did impact us morally. That the world was going through a big pandemic. I'm sure Lebanon was not touch-free, it was going through its own share of issues. And then this blast happened. And uh, there's so much of, I would put that word, conspiracies of why did the blast happen also. And you you are agitated, but, you know, while everybody is focused on that blast and the impact, but what you brought out about these individuals who on the grassroots really got impacted, and that story was really heartwarming and heart-touching and I saw some of that and it was really meaning I should not say it was beautiful but it was beautiful in the way it was pressurized in the way the stories were said so I want to touch base a little bit further on the entire because you said you fifth day you were there so it's not just from Germany to Lebanon I'm sure Germany was also the Europe was also going to pandemic Lebanon was also going to pandemic and Lebanon also had this bomb blast how were you able to get the crew along with you to get out of their homes because of the pandemic as well as because of the blast? And you yourself keeping yourself secure and not worrying about you either attracting disease or having officials come behind you because of something what you're doing, which is exposing few things and few aspects. Um, it, was, it was definitely risky. Uh, mm -hmm. It was also a moment in time when... Uh, many intellectuals in the documentary uh, community around the world that I belong into were asking themselves questions like, are we supposed to be filming while there's a pandemic in the world? What kind of stories um, 
give us enough reason to to break our our lockdown and go out and shoot um i try to as much as possible address these things as much as possible and i try not to take risks i remember my flight from berlin to beirut had literally nine people on it only so i knew wow. i was going against the current uh doing all of this but at the same time you know i tried to follow as much of uh the world regulations the who regulations i think i did not drop my mask in 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 a full week of being in lebanon mm-hmm. um and i hand sanitized until my skin was scraped off uh <laughs> but more than anything th- this is the type of um impulsive filmmaking uh that characterizes a person like me it was not so much a a creative or artistic endeavor in this case it was more me wanting to see a city that i grew up in until age 10 only but a city that con- continued to inform my filmmaking for many years to come um, my most successful film is a film i would make in beirut after i had left it in so many years it's called grandma a thousand times and mm-hmm. i really felt during the explosion that i i needed to be there uh there were risks that were taken uh, i think corona was um quite it was spreading so heavily in that period in lebanon but the lebanese tended to undermine it because they were going through the gravity of the explosion itself which yes. came on the heels of a banking crisis that yes. saw people's savings vanish uh yes. that saw uh, the value of the currency uh drop down to to one tenth of its value and there were many questions being asked about human suffering and the human condition in that period but more importantly in the course of making this film i started to wonder what is the culpability of the lebanese government in all of this and to what extent should it be stepping forward to to protect these citizens or do just anything for them and that's what happened over the course of making this film it started out being about nicole speaking about an explosion and what happened to her husband but by the end of it her interviews and all all her um messaging was was directed at the lebanese government she would imagine if the government was listening into us and she would be talking to them invisibly and that was the only way she could vent and and you know get get herself to articulate anything she was just so bitter and so were many lebanese people because our mm-hmm. government somehow did not step in to do anything after the explosion we've had a number of demonstrations calling for the government to to do more and what ended up happening on these days was that the government officials were shooting down at people with yeah. with machine guns um mm-hmm. it was quite quite a time to be in lebanon not only experiencing the grief but experiencing a government that is trying to hold on to power at any cost even if it means shooting sh- shooting at protesters with with live ammunition meaning i can just imagine the amount of risk personally and and it's not just for you even for your crew the responsibility which you had to shoulder to ensure that your crew and you are being kept safe as you navigate that one week you spoke about nicole being an amazing orator and also she ready to share the story how were you able to get her being comfortable to do that and you you said that she didn't say yes or a no 
But it's not the first time you've done that. In your other series as well, whether it's a Champ of the Camp or the Grandma Thousand Words, you've done that time and again. How do you make people comfortable? Because if you try to shoot me right now, I will be completely uncomfortable with if you try to follow me for the entire day. How do you do that? How do you make them at ease? Uh, I'm uh, I ha- I have that embarrassed grin on my face right now. Um, and I, I wish I could give you uh, a straight answer. Um, I would describe myself before being a filmmaker as being a people's person. I'm I'm a street guy. I have mm-hmm. spent so much time in my life uh, on the street speaking to people. Uh, and I've done that around the world. I've done that in bars. I've done that in markets. Um I have also a lot to 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 thank uh, India and, and Hinduism for. I've, I've I've done yoga for more than half of my life. I'm 42 years old. Uh, I I can't really put my finger on anything, but I can feel who is a person who is ready to talk, and who's a person who is just going to remain like a closed shell. So my mm. talent is not necessarily talking to people it's more identifying a person who might open up and might open up and share a pain uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to a person who is only interested in being on tv because those are the people who open up a bit too easily and they make themselves available you know the, the people who get on their tiptoes so you choose yep. them with you with your camera so i know how to avoid those as well um and i i no, i can i you know, I because I was going to be talking to you, I said, you know, I should do justice to some of the art which you have created. And uh, I did spend time on Champ of the Camps on a Sunday morning. Uh, I was thinking, okay, I'll forward it. You know, typically if you watch certain series or documentaries, you want to skip ahead and, you know, see what the how the protagonist is going to either win it or lose it or what the intentions or what the further obstacles are going to be. But candidly, I didn't press one time also that 10 second or that 15 second fast forward. It was so intriguing and engaging that I kept on with it. Uh, And I watched the entire piece. Uh, And somewhere it was heartening, emotional, and many of the other pieces. And that day I thought that, you know, even a media, or I would give that word documentary like what you did, The Champ of the Camps. It has its place in the mainstream media. You know, we always believe mainstream media as movies, or which has songs and drama and a lot of emotions. Even the Champ of the Camp had all of that, uh, but it was not a commercial intent movie. It was something which was telling a story of these individuals staying in those Dubai camps. Uh, but that was not a week long. It was much more than that. How do you? kept motivation to do that for such a long time following those journeys. Right. I have personally watched The Champ of Camps and it's a heart-touching story about the blue-collar workers in Dubai. And the documentary takes more profound insights into the Dubai worker camps. Here is a glimpse of The Champ of the Camps. I mean, Sabhi ko bhi aisa lagta hai hamara koi zindagi nahi 
क्योंकि सुबह काम में आता है पूरा पसीना से कपड़ा गीला होता है शाम तक is the film i made about uh, a an antakshari singing competition that takes place inside the labor camps of the united arab emirates so mm. uh, each participating camp would have a singing competition uh, mostly bollywood songs and the winner in every camp competes with the winners of other camps and ultimately you have the champ of all camps um labor camps in themselves are are where the main interest for me a labor camp is is a very controversial construct uh that is um synonymous to the rise of the arabian gulf it's these yep. spaces where thousands of men who work mostly in the la- in the construction industry uh mm-hmm. go to sleep in the evening uh they are men only up to 3000 men can live in a in a single camp um the facilities are poor of course in in case you compare it to the rest of the city and many of these men are separated from their families usually in india pakistan uh nepal and bangladesh and they're separated for years uh while they work in dubai and make mm-hmm. a an income which in fairness is a lot higher than anything they stand to make in their home countries but that doesn't take away from the very harsh reality that these men have to live uh, yep. uh an an emotional separation as well as physical hardship because they continue to work as as the heat ramps up in the summer season and as the rest of the expats of the gulf countries travel back to their cooler climes in 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 countries in europe and the middle east and what have you um i was always keen to to explore the labor camps the labor okay. camps were were always tackled in a very um hard hitting journalistic way by 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 the european and and north yes. american media yep. and as well it kind of ignored uh, a certain personal story it was always a victimization story it was always mm-hmm. um critical of the gulf and nothing else but one couldn't help but wonder why do thousands of men still choose to sign up to come to the gulf and and live such a harsh life and and there's another side to the story but i i wanted to to focus on on the emotional yearning of these men uh and how maybe missing their homes and missing their families and suffering gets them to choose bollywood songs to sing and yep. why they they choose songs that have lyrics that tell their own stories so in a way champ of the camp the film ended up becoming a little bit like a bollywood film it has the bollywood songs it has yep. multiple genres it has mm-hmm. multiple characters it has uh the emotional father it has uh, the cheater who wants to to proceed in the competition and win at any cost um it has the judges and it has a lot of politics because by mm-hmm. by covering this competition you also get to see for yourself how how the camps are run what do they look like um you know what are the sleeping areas like what are the bathrooms like and mm-hmm. how does life unfold in these really strange constructs they look a lot like jails do uh mm-hmm. but but the people in them are making an income and sending it back home uh so it it was quite dexterous uh it's a reality that i wanted to cover so badly i can't say i had fun making that film 
um, I only had to spend six or seven months filming in camps while these men end up living in them for at least three to four years. That's usually yeah. the length of a work contract. But by the end, I really honestly did not want to be in Dubai anymore for a little while because um, everywhere I would go in my life after uh, after completing this film and after the success it had regionally in the Gulf, I would look around and say that there is an equivalent sad reality to every building I see, to every fancy five-star hotel, to every swimming pool. There's just a bunch of Indians and Pakistanis who are living a very difficult life just to bring this place up so that people like me can enjoy it. And I just really took a break and left Dubai for a few years and been living in Germany since. It's been six years now. And I'm slowly appearing in the Gulf scene once again and, and making projects in this part of the world. So let's rewind a little bit about your career. Uh, you know, you did your undergrad in filming and arts in Beirut. Then you went to Montreal to get your further studies done in filmmaking. And you did do some career in television uh, as a chaser, researcher to Dennis Tardo. Uh, the the news famous newsroom anchor of Montreal, but what got you to you know this type of uh, filmmaking? I would say, uh, what got you excited, or what why why choose this stream versus mainstream? Because you know this choice which you've made, I, I want to double click on that. Why this choice? Right, um, I I have indeed studied. Uh, auteur fiction filmmaking and I always imagine that I'm going to be uh, more of an artistic fiction filmmaker who writes scripts and films them in uh, difficult conditions and comes out with, with products that go to Cannes and uh, get debated on their aesthetic level but I think eventually I, I just fell in love with the real world and uh, I find people to be fascinating and I find the world to be just too interesting to detach from and construct a fake one in a film. Um, I still think I might make a fiction one day, but I doubt I will just because the more okay. I travel and the more people I meet, the more I discover that breaking into the intimate sphere of people and, and getting that on, on camera and getting their worlds uh, on a documentary film is, is just as thrilling. Um, and there is the other thing about how much I enjoy meeting people and talking to people as I was just uh, telling you. So in a way, this all culminated into a career in documentary filmmaking. Um, I still, still when I, when I hear myself described that way, I, I kind of get a little bit apprehensive. Uh, I do like a much more comfortable life than having to be uh, on planes in the middle of pandemics with a mask on the whole time. Um, I, I do prefer a lifestyle that is more synonymous with the life of directors of TV commercials, maybe, you know, fancier wines, uh, swankier cars, et cetera, et cetera. But I really think um, documentary filmmaking is an exercise of recording human sympathy and mm -hmm. uh, moments of human compassion. And um, some, some documentary filmmakers can unlock that moment into an outpouring of emotion and information about people's lives. And I think our job is to get these realities across 
for the general viewer who does not have a clue. Um, and I still get an immense kick out of that, I must say. Uh, I had a few years of not making films where I was very absorbed uh, into fatherhood, and that was uh, a learning curve of a different type. Uh, but I really, I really still do enjoy uh, speaking to people, mm-hmm. and and uh, with a camera or without. So I also do go to markets, and I keep my phone in my pocket. So there's one specific content which you have created, which I believe is very near and dear to you because you have featured yourself in that, which is a grandma a thousand times, and you've won a lot of recognition also for it. The Tribeca festival the mommy festival uh, and i believe she's your own grandma whom you have featured in that correct before we hear it from mahmood hear the glimpse from a grandma of thousand times ana alhaji fatma marto la mahmood rashid allah yarhamu Uh, grandma a thousand times was was really um, such a joy ride it was mm. such a small film as i was making it i had i had such big worries and and concerns that year over other things and i was chasing much bigger films and on the side i was just filming these really creative and and humorous sessions with my feisty grandmother and little did i know that they will come together into a film that will simply override anything else i have ever made and i continue to try to match it with anything and i the, the way it was received was was really quite insane um and i try to remember that film uh, to remind myself of that film and of of the need to always make things from the heart because really there was no plan whatsoever to what i was going to do with that video and as i started weaving it together it just came together so effortlessly and so seamlessly and um the film had the blessings of my grandma herself so it kind of caught wildfire and traveled everywhere i think i spent a bit more than 2 years of my life just traveling to film festivals around the world yep. fully paid just to share the film with audiences and and eat local foods in every place i went to and it was it was something i i will never forget uh grandma herself uh is a larger than life was a larger than life character we sadly lost the grandma only in november of last year a okay. single a single month after the 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 Beirut explosion and um it was quite metaphorical actually that she would only pass away after witnessing something so devastating um she was really quite feisty uh quite playful uh when i left to canada i stole an audio cassette from her home which to my surprise would feature uh violin music by my grandfather which he recorded in his last few years grandpa was a famous violinist in the middle east but towards okay. his, the end of his life uh he was very ill so he was uh he was homebound for a long while and to entertain himself he used to uh record himself playing solo arabic violin music on an audio cassette and uh mm-hmm. 
he he used to save these cassettes for posterity and one of them would fall in my hands and uh, I would I would later listen to it for years uh, being in Montreal, Canada as a film student and later as a television professional. And then I decided to come back to Lebanon one day and just share the fact with her that there is music by him that she does not know. And that's okay. how the film starts. Me and her sitting in her royal uh, sofa in a living room where she raised many generations of young men and women. And I play her his music so she remembers him. And grandma would go on to tell the story of their love and their past. But in the middle of all of this, there is a twist. And it's the fact that uh, I look very much like my grandfather. And I happen to be named after him. He was also called Mahmoud Kabur. So as she tells these stories about him, and I'm sitting across from her, she kind of really intensely sees him in me. And sometimes she makes the mistake of thinking that I am him. Mm. And I, I would, of course, jump on that opportunity and slowly start to present myself as him in the film. I would wear his clothes. I would hang out in his room. So it's a very playful, magic realist film about a grandfather, a grandmother, and a grandson, uh, where I'm both the filmmaker and the grandfather, where she is both a feisty woman living in the present uh, in a lonely way by herself, but as well uh, a yearning lover remembering a man whom she loved all her life and who passed away 20 years ago. And it all came together into this very playful film called Grandma a Thousand Times, where we just made poetry together. Uh, the whole film, or at least most of it, took place inside my grandmother's home where I grew mm -hmm. up. Uh, it unfolded over four different seasons. Uh, we spoke about his death and her impending death. The film is <coughs> shrouded with music, uh, beautiful Arabic music that the older generation would relate to. Uh, but what we did not expect is that the film will will really be so well received by people around the world. It seems mm -hmm. that the relationship of uh, grandchild to grandmother is just so universal. So the yeah. film was, you know, bringing people to tears in Japan and in the United yeah. States. And, and uh, Mommy in India gave it a Best Film Award in the Celebrate Age category. And that was all just hard to believe. Uh, grandma herself was uh, present with me at the premiere, which took place at Doha Tribeca Film Festival in mm -hmm. 2010. And we received the first uh, award for the film, which was the Audience Award uh, presented by Robert De Niro. And as you would imagine, her ego would never deflate from that moment <laughs> onwards. Uh, she came back to Lebanon. She did not know who De Niro was. Uh, yeah. She's she's more into her Egyptian cinema and Arabic cinema, but she she would gloat for years to come about this experience that she had. Um, and later, she would as well be thrilled that um, she would see herself on TV because the film was also. Uh, acquired by many, many networks across the world. So she would switch on Al Jazeera, for example, and see herself, and she'd be calling all her neighbors just to to see her on TV. Um, it, it was quite thrilling to see uh, an old person who was already 
you know, living a, a very, very lonely, sedentary life. Her husband had died. Uh, her kids had moved on and started families of their own. And she was in that stage where one would think she is just waiting for the day to to leave this world. And suddenly, mm -hmm. out of this loneliness, she became a star. Um, so the phenomenon of making the film as well was also quite intriguing to a lot of people. Grandma was suddenly famous in Lebanon. Um, mm -hmm. some, some people would notice the handrail of her balcony, uh, from watching the film and they mm -hmm. would go up to her home just to meet her and she would open the door nice. and extend her hand out for kisses very, very shamelessly. Um, it was, it was sweet. Uh, it, it definitely brought a, a, a certain boost to our family and our self-esteem uh, and to hers as well. Um, she was sadly never interested in a film I made after that, never wanted to watch them. She only was curious to have a part two for that film, which I never did. Um, but it was quite sweet. The story is just beautiful and uh, I have watched some of it and uh, yeah, it's a universal story. It's not a Lebanon or your and your relationship with uh, your grandma, it's its universal and I can relate to it as well personally. Right. So there's one thing which you mentioned, Mahmoud, about you shooting in your grandma's home, even in the camps. Uh, I'm sh the camp was also doing some shooting of their own, but you were also doing and leveraging some of the setup which was already there, uh, as well as the the Lebanon you were shooting in the real life, but the equipments, the post-production, the crew, it costs a lot of money. And in commercial and fictional movies, you have sponsorship, you get money from distribution, you make money out of ticket sales, but in documentary, you don't get any of that. How, how, what is the commercial aspect of this? You know, people who don't understand this type of filmmaking, how does commercial piece work? Well, that's that's a sore topic, unfortunately. Documentary filmmaking, to a large extent, um, there are documentaries that make money. Um, mm -hmm. My grandma movie was really quite generous to me. Uh, I owned the rights. I made it out mm -hmm. of pocket. So uh, I made all the money from that and shared that money with no one. So that was a very successful commercial endeavor. Uh, Champ of the Camp, on the other, I did not wow. see that money back. Uh, it was done very professionally. We had four film crews, uh, four film units working on it to cover the competition as it unfolds in multiple camps at the same time. Uh, we recorded in Dolby Sound. That was back in 2013. You know, it was technically uh, punching much higher than its weight. But then the distribution that the film recorded, which was restricted to the Arabian Gulf, was not enough to pay for its cost. So I came out of that film, uh, you know, limping, quite frankly. Um, they don't always succeed. There is the commissioned films, which are the safest bet. So say you work with Netflix, uh, they like something you have, so they will pay upfront for what you're making. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's financially safe. Maybe you come out with a bit of profit, but that also means that the platform like Netflix owns your film and not yourself. So you will, you will not even have the privilege of showing your film in a private room 
to people who might benefit from it. So it turns into very much a, a product. Um, there are different ways for different, making different types of films, but to me, every film I made has been uh, has worked according to a different model. It, I have made my films with different crews every time. I believe that there is a a film family that needs to come together to bring birth to a single new film. Uh, I work with new cinematographers every time, with new editors. I feel that every film will attract people who believe in it and who want to contribute to it for more than just a fee. Um, I could not have done uh, my family and the explosion had my crew not been willing to volunteer to work. I, I would say all of them have worked without a fee. And later when I sold the film, I was able to pay them. Um, and those are usually the people who bring a certain passion into the trade. You know, they're mm -hmm. not in it just for the paycheck. They believe in the story that you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I, to me personally, the documentary community in Beirut, Lebanon, is simply unmatched with a certain passion that they have to simply mm -hmm. see a story come to life. I've worked with crews in Dubai. I've worked with crews in Germany and Canada. I filmed internationally. And it's a job to a lot of people. But like... The Lebanese have this passion to seeing a piece of cinema come to life. And for that, I love them so much. It's not because I hail from there, but because twice already, uh, the passion of the Lebanese has allowed two pieces of cinema of mine to come to life before I knew where the money was going to come from. Wow. Yeah, people don't appreciate many a times many of these uh, types of movies because today technology has also allowed you to distributed in multiple platforms, whether it is YouTube or Vimeo or many of them. And, you know, today YouTube is free, Vimeo is free. So people will feel, oh, it's like, and today there are many creators also. Uh, so what's your perspective on these multiple platforms, whether it is YouTube or Netflix or Amazon, and there are so many more coming up every day. What's your perspective? Is it helping? Is it deterring as a maker of content? Well, the the platform war is is much larger than than us, the content creators. Um, mm -hmm. I, I already believe the world has more platforms than it needs. I, I think mm -hmm. there are more platforms than people will ever spend on. Uh, maybe people in Dubai, let's say, have such high disposable income that they can sign up for Netflix and Amazon and HBO, et cetera, et cetera. But in the rest of the world, people are very selective. They might do one or two. And in a city like Berlin, where I'm based, many people actually choose not to sign up for any platform because to them, to them, watching movies is something that you do in the movie theater. There's still this integrity to the art form where people are uh, willing to only consume uh, a concert, let's say, at the concert hall or a movie at the movie theater. You know, there's that kind of authenticity yep. to the media. Um, for us, of course, there's a threat. Um, um, uh, you know, the technology has advanced so much that anyone can go out and shoot their own film and edit it on, on, on their iPhone. Um, mm -hmm. The platforms are really quite restricted and a bit of a star culture. So Netflix will only 
work with select uh, film directors on documentaries and they want the documentaries to be done according to a very specific formula. You know, I personally do not enjoy watching more uh, crime content on Netflix. I can see how this formula works, but I can see how all these new productions are abiding with that formula. You know, the food porn formula is another one. You know, you watch one or two or three, but if you're getting stuck into watching that, you're not really watching anything new. And I'm more of a person who likes for a new story to attract me. And I don't know yet what the formula is going to be and whether it's going to be a commercial success. And luckily for me, I don't mind failing on one and succeeding with another one. Um, VOD is very, very formulaic for me. I I hate to say Uh, it's a bit like eating candy. It's very easy to swallow. And to me, a documentary should not necessarily be made for the entertainment aspect. It's great to watch a documentary that entertains you as well. But to me, I come from a tradition where documentary filmmaking is about really digging into human nature and showing you things you did not see on film before. And it's very Mm -hmm. much about watching the monitoring the sources of power. You know, documentary has to quiz power on on authority, on on abuse of power, on how power is being applied. It's very much in the journalistic vein, and I like that as well. And you don't expect to find that on Netflix. Uh, You know, Netflix is is very much about entertainment. So documentary is is transforming a little bit in light Mm -hmm. of these platforms. We're seeing these very entertaining documentary titles, which even someone like myself enjoys watching. but I expect more from the documentary genre. It has to tell me more about my world. It has to be a little bit uh, more challenging. It has to unseat power and, and make it feel that it's being watched. And, and mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the domain that I signed up to, to contribute cinema into. You did mention about technology in a different light, like iPhone or poor production aspect. In your filmmaking, you have seen technology evolve also, whether these are cameras or whether this is post-production and now with VFX and drones and so much of that aspect. So double-clicking on technology further, how much do you feel today when you are shooting, you still like that raw shooting with just a camera rather than bringing these blings and flings? Is that a necessity today? when you do that or do you feel that it's not required i mean technology when technology evolves in documentary filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, the aesthetic changes as well the access changes you know like i studied filmmaking in a film school which was transitioning from uh, 16 millimeter filmmaking into into hd so mm-hmm. i did my final year film on on a video camera but everything i had studied before was on film and film was slow you know you had to light for it you had to cut it manually and stick it together it was very much like learning uh tailoring or knitting you know it's it's very much about organization you know some people would would shoot this beautiful stuff and then the strips would fall somewhere on the floor and they wouldn't find them again um 
new technology takes us to new places. I think the invention of the phone allowed us to make more intimate filmmaking. Um, so there is still high production value filmmaking that gets done. You know, when you make a documentary for the BBC or Channel 4, you still shoot with a professional crew with like 4K cameras and, and, and you have a bigger team shooting. But there is also a lot that is being done on on iPhones right now that allows you intimate access. Mm -hmm. uh, people get a little bit too hung up on what technology to use, but the truth is good storytelling is still a requirement for any type yep. of filmmaking you do. So yep. even if you're shooting with the biggest crews and you don't have a story, um, is not the same as getting a film master make his next film on an iPhone and he's still employing his own uh, narrative techniques and, mm -hmm. and interesting storytelling to, to grip you. So I still feel that at the core of documentary filmmaking, there is a storytelling talent that is required and the people who have it are not necessarily people who are wonderful technicians or kids who are very good with their phones and things like that. It's more about people who, you know, can weave a story together. People who've done a lot of jigsaw puzzle as, uh, as kids or people who read books, you know, you know, it's very much about what comes before what. There's never one right answer, but when you capture so much reality on film, you later have to go into a room and decide where the story stops and where it starts and how you extract a really emotional story out of basically filming just life. And, and that's where the focus to me should remain. So just building on this guidance, which you uh, just provided to many of my listeners. So if anybody is thinking about developing their careers in what you are doing, similar to it or evolve it, what would be your perspective be? You did mention about storytelling being the paramount piece. Uh, and you did touch about uh, pace the the sar point about money, which is involved. What else would you share as a perspective? Well, career and and uh, employment and income are questions that trouble a lot of people in this world right now, especially mm -hmm. as it transforms once again in light of Corona and technological upheaval and and uh, the lack of travel. Um, yep. I think we're safe to say that no one can guarantee that anything that they study at a university anymore will bring them an income. So <laughs> yep. it's good to keep that in mind. I still encourage people to learn trades. If you have a trade, you have an income. You know, if if you can, if you can work, if you can ply wood, and if you can uh, work work with metal, or if you can yep. fix bathrooms, that's payable, billable hours that you can get paid for. That's not the same with filmmaking, unfortunately. Filmmaking is very much a star culture. There'll be one or two or three or four very successful people who, who, who make the big paychecks. But the medium good ones do not get half the fee. They just get yeah. nothing. Um, I never got into this business to to make money, but I have learned along the way how to, to to monetize my work, how to distribute it. The paychecks have gotten smaller over the years as content has spread around the world and um, and people have started making their own content. Uh, I think approaching documentary filmmaking 
with a paycheck in mind is not the right approach. If this is what you're after, please go to something else. Make advertising that has still a little bit of money left in it. But yeah. even that is transforming. Um, but I really also feel that storytelling in itself is a talent that can be taken out of documentary filmmaking and applied somewhere else. And right now, even businesses and corporations, everyone is trying to come up with their own narrative. And once you learn how to make narratives, you can take that into different fields. I really hope nonetheless that uh, the world will continue to see documentary filmmakers who can take us to where we cannot go. And I mm. do not mean here getting on a plane and flying to the North Pole. I mean taking us into local families, into local yep. traditions, uh, taking us into places where strangers don't get to go and taking us there for a reason. We don't just want to watch to feed curiosity. We want to learn We want to learn stories that empower us to take action, to participate. Uh, the world is tired right now of colonial filmmaking. This is a term that you hear quite a bit on the festival yes. circuit. No one wants the European to fly in Africa and show us films from there anymore. Uh, no one wants the, the Arab to go into the labor camp to tell us stories from there. We want the locals of every reality to reflect on their own realities. And with that in mind, people can now pick up their very smartphones and make something from their own milieu and take us to a place we have not seen. Hmm. How has family supported you in this entire endeavor? Because you know, you also have your family to support you to be on this journey. Uh, family is a big question. Um, I've, I've lived in multiple families in my life. I think mm. making my choice to be a filmmaker was fully supported since mm. my childhood because luckily for me, I come from a family that works in the arts. I have a grandfather who was a violinist, uh, a TV director uncle, a composer uncle, My father was a banker, but he was also a writer. So um, all, these, all this made my choice of entering the arts to be less challenging than it is for other kids. And that was okay. I would say it was a little bit harder much later in life as technology was transforming, as films were generating less revenue to be a family man. That was a hard moment when... I was perhaps bringing in a smaller paycheck than a man my age could. But, you know, I still love what I do and I can, I can finally create enough volume of work and have different irons in the fire, some projects in development, some projects about to finish, that I know that some money will be coming in at some point or another. It's really not, not easy. It's not easy to... to To have kids and to be a documentary filmmaker, to need to be away from home every time you need to shoot. You know, I left two daughters behind in Germany to plunge into a city where, where an explosion had just taken place and where Corona is spreading. You know, that's more the life of international reporters. And I had promised early in life, everyone around me, that I'm not going to be that. You know, I'm not, I'm not the type of filmmaker that goes to dangerous places Uh, to capture stories. It was exceptional in Beirut, but I would say this has put a duress on my family. And and that was, you know, all, my, my daughter who's eight kept saying, you know, but you know what you're doing is wrong. We here in Germany are, are not even going to the supermarket anymore. And you're trying to go to Beirut, Lebanon 
in the middle of a pandemic. Um, it's the nature of, of the trade, unfortunately, but it's also part of the thrill. And I will not hide that there's, there's an immense thrill in this. No one needs to push me to do it. You know, just get me on a plane and send me somewhere. And, you know, I'll, 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 be, I'll be the best version of myself as I tell stories. One last perspective from you, Mahmoud. Is there somebody whom you look up to in your stream of work? That's a good question. Of course, there are many filmmakers whom I love, many documentary filmmakers, but as well many storytellers. Um, names that come to mind are, of course, uh, Errol Morris in the U.S. He's one mm -hmm. of the masters of documentary filmmaking who continued to make visually inventive films. He developed a language of his own. And he has managed to turn the art of interview into, into something completely new and elevated. Uh, my favorite interviewer in the world is probably Ante, the late Anthony Bourdain, who did not make what you would say is, is uh, feature-length documentaries. He was more of a television personality, but his level of empathy in speaking to people he met over the world uh, and and having sharing a meal with them was was really so fresh in both sympathy and style. He was he was what I called a a one man genre. But I also tend to love the people who transform their trade. So storytellers who can do a little bit of fiction and a little bit of documentary and can equally pick up a phone and put something on YouTube and not constantly feel inhibited in the parameters of of their art form because to me right now filmmakers who are still trying to go out and make a film that is three hours long and expect yep. that anyone's going to sit and watch that anyone more than a group of 50 or 100 you know i i really think that's delusional as well um sure technology technology keeps changing and with that comes a rewiring of our brains i i i'm not condoning completely surrendering to every new platform that comes out and forces upon us a new style of filmmaking. But I, I would say that we cannot acknowledge that people, we cannot ignore that people now watch stories that are one and two minutes long or 30 seconds long. And I think the people who want to make meditative cinema the way it used to be done 40 or 50 years ago, they just need to acknowledge the social media. Hmm. On that note, Mahmoud, it's been an amazing conversation that you and I have had. I've learned a lot personally uh, from your experience and from your background. Thank you for taking time out. I know you are in the midst of something very exciting, soon to be released out to all of us. Uh, so best of luck with that. Uh, I will let my audience look up your profile and, you know, be eager to see what's coming in. Uh, so. So I'll not spill the beans there, but uh, sure. create that excitement. Thank you for having me. It's 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 been a it's been a pleasure to to look back and reflect at how I've lived my life, and uh, yeah. hopefully hopefully there will be more interesting guests on your show to listen to. Definitely, Mahmoud, and thank you, and best of luck, and stay safe. Take care. Thank you for listening in. And we close yet another episode of Masters Decoded. If you've enjoyed the episode, please, you can help us out by sharing it on social media. I would personally appreciate that 
It's how we can reach more listeners. And the more listeners we have, the more awesome guests I can get in touch and convince to participate in these conversations. That are a joy to have for me. And I hope they are a joy for you to listen as well. You can also help a lot leaving reviews on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. Reviews are surprisingly helpful in supporting the podcast to get to more listeners. If this episode has intrigued you, I would request you to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date and get notified to the future episodes. With that, I bid you and see you in the next episode.